from the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and gave them all the commands that the Lord has given, had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. The word of the Lord. From the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 12 through chapter 4, verse 2. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with every increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The word of the Lord. We stand for the reading of our gospel from the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. 
I don't know about you, but I think some of us may resonate with the disciples today in that we are feeling very sleepy. What do you think? No? Just me. All right. That's fine. Um, It is good to see you all today. Uh, It is Transfiguration Sunday, and it is also the end of a series that we've been walking through called The Sacred Journey. And we've been taking a look at various movements that happen in the Christian faith how there are kind of these elements to our journey, these, we could say, stops along the way in our journey, but they actually are a bit more like a pinball machine. They don't always happen sequentially. We kind of go back and forth and back and forth. I've been looking at these different movements. So the first week, we looked at this idea of encounter. What does it mean to encounter God? All of us may remember that time when we encountered God for the first time, when we met God in faith for the first time. But in the Christian journey, we meet him often in creation, in art, in the reading of scripture, in community, in serving the poor. We meet God all over the place and encounter changes us. We're called into his presence when we encounter him. We are um, reminded and made aware of our sin and our brokenness. Through the speaking of his word and through communion with him, we're healed and then we're sent. All of that happens when we encounter God. Um, and that's why I love, that's our worship pattern every Sunday, <laughs> is that we, we come in, we're called into God's presence, we're made aware of our sin, we are healed by the word of God and by communion, and then we're sent out into the world. So encounter was the first movement. The second movement we looked at is simply how revolutionary this path is. So we encounter God and we changed, and then we realize as we're going down the journey of discipleship, this path is way different than every other path. It's very revolutionary. It's upside down. And in this path, we have to trust God. We can't trust in ourselves or any of the mortal structures of this world. We have to radically hold on to God and to his story. And then we looked last week at this idea of Christian virtue that's been developed in our hearts. We are encountering God. We are called on a revolutionary path. And then this path forms Christian virtue. As we trust him, we trust that we're part of a whole new way of living, a whole new reality, a whole new life, a new world. So Christians begin to, because of God's love and this revolutionary path, we forgive. We love our enemies. We pray for them. This kind of Christian virtue calls us to a radical generosity where we hold on to possessions loosely and not tightly and we give to others of our lives. This week, we're gonna talk about the glory of God. We're gonna talk about those places when we see God's glory shining in the world. We see God's provision. We see God for who he really is. And this Sunday is a preparation for us as we begin this week to step into Lent. Wednesday marks the beginning of the season of Lent. It is Ash Wednesday. And uh, it, it is a season of repentance, of confession. It's a season of being aware of our own brokenness and also our dependence on God. One of the major themes that we see throughout the Lenten season is this theme of desert. So it's this this idea of desert, that we're not in slavery in Egypt, which is um, what we see with the children of Israel. We're not yet to the promised land, but we're in the desert. Much of the Christian life is in the midst of raw materials, in the midst of sand, the desert, the wild animals. Desert is a time of journey, a time of dependence, and you can't live in the desert without trusting something, (laughs) that you're headed somewhere, that you've been somewhere before. You can't just go to the desert just to hang out there. (laughs) You have to trust and hold on to something. 
We're walking to an inheritance and the journey seems to take forever, but we're trusting something. The children of Israel, after they're delivered from slavery in Egypt, they wander in the wilderness. Many of you know, even from Sunday school, the story of they wander for 40 years and it actually looks like they go in a circle <laughs> over and over again. We also see in the New Testament, Jesus, after his baptism, himself is tempted in the desert. When we're left with the raw elements and when we don't see clearly the way where we're going, when we can't trust in our resources, I wanna to suggest today, this is where often God is most at work in our lives. When we don't know exactly where to trust, when we can't just trust what's in our hands and what we can do, that's actually the place where we go, God's working, he's there. So what do we hang on to in the wilderness? Well, we of course look to Jesus. We are able to walk through the desert faithfully only because we know who he is and what he's done for us. So today, right before we enter the desert, we are reminded in full resplendent expression of who God is. That's what our story tells us today. In all of our texts, you'll notice every single text today begins on a mountaintop, begins on the top of a mountain. In Exodus 34, we see the children of Israel in the desert and at Mount Sinai, and Moses is on Mount Sinai. The mountaintop is this fascinating signpost. So you can always see like um, topography in the scriptures. Like anytime they talk about mountains or seas or deserts, it has some sort of significance. It's like not just giving us geographical points. It's telling us something about that story and what's happening. And the mountaintop experience in scripture is often about closeness to God. There was a belief in the, belief in the ancient world, and, and we don't necessarily say that if you climb a mountain, you're closer to God today, but, but in the ancient world, in the ancient writings, there's this idea of going up the mountain is seeking God, trying, attempting to be close to God. The Lord has made a covenant with Moses on the top of the mountain, on Mount Sinai, and has given the children of Israel commands as ways to live as part of the covenant. So he's up on the mountain, he's talking to God, and God says, this is how the people are to live in relationship with me. This is how they're gonna be formed as God's people as they do these things. This is actually the second time God has done this with Moses. Okay, The first time God made a covenant, he wrote on the tablets of stone, Moses came down from the mountain and he found something shocking. He saw that the Israelites were worshiping a golden calf. So he comes down from the mountain and he sees that the children of Israel, they put their gold together and they've created this calf. Now this isn't, for us, we look at that and we go, man, why would you trade worshiping God for worshiping like this golden object? Like we think that's so strange. But if you think about their situation, Moses has been gone for a long time and they're going, we can't see God anywhere. Where is he? We can't hear him. We can't see him. He used to be present with us. Moses is gone. We don't know what's going on. Oh, I have a revelation. God wants us to see him. Yahweh wants us to see him by putting our stuff together by having something tangible that we can see and we can touch and we can control. So they trade trust when they can't see for something that they can physically put their hands on and dance around and know exactly what this God is. They try to control and manipulate God. Well, Moses is so upset at their lack of trust, he throws the covenant at them. So he throws the stone at them and they break, okay? Um, but God in his grace doesn't give up at that point. 
he invites Moses back up onto the mountain and gives him new tablets of stone. This time, as Moses comes down from the mountain with these new tablets, it says in our text today, his face is shining. In fact, it says, from here forward, every time Moses speaks with the Lord, his face is radiant. And apparently it was making people kind of uncomfortable <laughs> because Moses had to like veil his face eventually because it was just starting to get weird. You know, he's going around with the shining face and what is happening? There's something about being in communion with God that changes us, that forms us. I know it's weird to think about having a, like an encounter with God and then like having our face shine. But I actually do think there's something when, when our habits are oriented towards God, there is something in us that actually really, really forms, <laughs> that really, really changes and shapes who we are. And in the ancient world, this was a powerful sign. It was a sign that this God, Yahweh, is not distant like, distant like the pagan gods are. This is not a God who just requires for you to act right and stays really far away. And if you act badly, then he will smite you. That's not this God. This is the God who desires real relationship and also real transformation, that you would actually be changed. It's not just about doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing. It's about actually being formed by this relationship with God. That's who this God is. The Shining is not just this nice moment like when Spider-Man is bit by a spider and has these great powers that happen after that. That's not the Moses experience here. Um, it's not an encounter that we see with radioactive material or something that makes him you know, shine. This is particularly a kind of light, and the Hebrew here is it's a light that goes out. It's a light that is illuminating. Okay? It's not just a light that kind of glows. It's a light that goes out. It's not just about the change in Moses, but it's about a light that comes from that. He's a conduit of the light, not just a container of the light that goes out into the world. This shining was a sign of who God desires the children of Israel to be through the covenant. So he makes a relationship with them, a covenant with them. And then he says, I want you, basically, I want you to shine in the world. I want you to show through your, how you live and through this covenant who I am to the world. The Moses shining is kind of a symbol or an embodiment of that. They would be his people who would shine in the world. And they would need to hold on to this memory, to this reality, because times are about to get tough in the desert, okay? They have to hold on to this reality. We were created to shine. We were created to reflect the image of God. And because of sin, none of us has truly fully seen that. Um, we live behind a veil. It's been veiled from us. It's hidden from us. But it's who we're called to be as human beings. And we trust that there will be that day when we will be fully restored. We will shine. Daniel says, shine like the stars. I think it's a bit of what's happening in the process of spiritual formation. Because of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, we are being shaped by God's presence in order to shine into the world. And this often happens in the desert, in moments of trust. In our epistle passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul basically takes the story of Moses and he like writes a commentary about it. He's interpreting this story of Moses that we just read. Paul is showing us that in Jesus, something different has happened, something even beyond what happened to Moses. When Moses experienced God, there had to be a veil on his face. 
we didn't see God's glory fully. God always pursued relationship with us. He's always drawn close to us, but there was something about it that there had to be a veil on his face. But in Jesus Christ, we are now able to see God's fullest expression. God in the flesh, Paul says. There is no veil anymore. I don't know about you, but that's really often hard for me to say. Well, now, because of Jesus, I see God just clearly all the time. Is that hard for you to say? (laughs) Yeah, because of Jesus, I just, I see God perfectly, exactly how he is. There's no veil anymore. I don't know that that's always our experience, is it? Have you ever had a situation in your life where you feel like you didn't see God anywhere? Where is God? Where is he? If you haven't had one of those yet in your life, you will have one, okay? What will you hold on to in that time? Many of the testimonies that we hear in church, the ones that kind of go viral, the ones that we hear about all the time and that seem the most exciting are about people who once couldn't see God and then all of a sudden they can see God. Like they go from turn on a dime that I couldn't see God, but now I see him. I didn't see where God was, but now I see him. And this may happen through being convinced of the gospel. It may happen through a miracle that happens. We celebrate all of those things. They're wonderful. But as a pastor, I hear more stories where we go through something and somebody goes through a situation and it just leaves them scratching their head. And they go, well, where was God there? How did that happen? We don't ever clearly see the why behind our struggles. Well, Paul is not saying here that we're gonna see everything in our life clearly now because of Jesus, that we're just gonna see everything completely perfectly about life. But he is saying God is known clearly in Jesus Christ. In other words, if you have a question about God, Paul is saying, look at Jesus. Jesus is God's final word. He said, Moses had an encounter with God and it changed his countenance. It was so powerful. Light came from him, but Jesus, as John would tell us, is the light of the world himself. He is the light. He is the illumination himself. God is present in human flesh. And because of that, humanity is invited to be transfigured into who we were created to be because of Jesus. And we can not only see the glory of God, we're invited to participate in the glory of God, in the divine nature. And this calls us into a radically different way of being in the world, a different way of living. And yet there's something else going on here for Paul. We have to know some of his context. Like anytime you read any of Paul's letters, you gotta remember they're letters from him to people. Okay, so we're reading someone else's mail, as one of my professors used to say. Whenever we read the New Testament, we're going, okay, am I supposed to be hearing this about this lady who had a fight with this other lady and you know, all these different things that are going on in the New Testament? Um, but Paul is, is writing in a particular context, okay? So in this section of the Corinthians, Paul's like defending himself. There's this thing going on with Paul where there are a lot of other apostles out there. And there's a group of apostles who are going around calling themselves the super apostles. Like, like that's their, that's what, seriously, that's what they're doing. They're going around and saying, we're the super apostles. And the Corinthian Christians have heard these super apostles and they're so flashy and they're charismatic and they're exciting and they're doing all these like mystical kind of amazing things. And Paul is not that way. He's a fine speaker and everything, but he's humble. 
He's, um, he's not as charismatic as these other teachers. He's not flashing, flashy. So they're reading Israel's story, and then they're looking for Paul to shine like Moses. Like, do something dramatic like Moses did. Ooh, that's a cool story in Exodus 34. Why doesn't that happen? Why aren't you doing that? And Paul tells them that God's glory in Christ is somehow hidden. It's different from what they expect. And he tells them that this shining will be manifested in his life, not just in his appearance, okay? Christ's life was manifested in how he walked to the cross. Jesus was fully God, and yet being fully God, this led him to his death. So Paul is saying this, when you look at me, look at my character. Does my character look like the person of Christ? Look at how I live. That's a different way. That's a different way of shining. So that's going on here as well. And then finally, in our gospel text, um, Jesus has gone up to a mountaintop to pray. And if you were hearing this story in the world of the first century, all kinds of alarm bells would go off for you. Jesus going up onto a mountaintop. He's seeking God, okay? He's close to God. Mountains, remember the story of Moses. We would also remember the story of Elijah who experienced God on the mountaintop and heard him in a still small voice. So the story of Moses, the story of Elijah. Now Jesus is going up onto a mountaintop. All these guys go on mountains. Okay, Jesus is ascending to a mountain. He's going to be with God. And then who shows up? Moses and Elijah. And both of these guys, Moses and Elijah, in their stories were both also commanded to choose successors. They both were commanded to choose successors. And here Jesus is shining super bright white. It says brighter than lightning at this point. And then we have these two prophets, both were commanded to choose successors. They both show up. In this moment, we see Moses and Elijah basically pointing to Jesus and saying, he's the guy. He's the successor. Jesus steps into his vocation as part of a story, the story of Israel. He's being nudged from behind by these two guys, these two great leaders who represent the prophets from old, and they stand as if he's to say, he's the guy. He's the fulfillment of our story. Why is this important? Well, Jesus was not just a new religious figure who had a kind of a mystical experience and rose to prominence. He is not just the start of a new movement. He's the fulfillment of the story of Israel. And that's what Moses and Elijah show us here. Luke also tells us the purpose of why Moses and Elijah show up. It says, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah are there to prepare Jesus for what's to come. The word departure is interesting. It's actually the same word for the word exodus. Exodus means a few things in the literal sense. It means exodus like leaving, okay? And that's surely an allusion to the exodus of the Old Testament. Jesus is bringing about a new kind of exodus, a new kind of liberation. But it's also a euphemism for death. Today, when we say somebody died, a lot of times we will say it less bluntly. We'll say they passed away, you know, something like that. Well, at this time, what you would say is you'd say they had an exodus or they departed, Okay. And so this is a way of speaking about his death. They're talking about that. Jesus is leading a new kind of exodus. 
Moses has gone through an exodus before. He led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus is preparing to lead a new exodus of all God's people out of slavery of sin and death and home to the promised land of new creation, the redemption of the whole world. And this is carried about in a strange way through his death. I know some of this is technical today, but I think if we can understand some of what's behind some of this, I really think it illuminates it for us and we're heading somewhere with this. This passage is an incredible event. So we've got shining clothes. We've got great figures from the past showing up, but notice Jesus doesn't stay on the mountain, all right? So Peter, here's what Peter wants to do. He, he freaks out a little bit and he wants to freeze frame this experience. Have you ever had a powerful experience in your life and you're like, I just wanna stay here forever. I don't want this to ever change. That's why we take pictures, don't we? When Lucy does something, I'm like, oh gosh, I can't, I gotta capture this. She sings a song or whatever. I gotta record this. We wanna freeze frame. Well, that's what Peter wants to do. So he's like, <laughs> he says this thing that I think is as silly in Greek as it is in English. He says, Jesus, first thing he says, it's really good that we're here, Okay. <laughs> So it's really good. That's a good thing. And then he offers to build tents. Now there's a, um, there's a whole thing about the tabernacles, the Feast of the Tabernacles and all these kind of things. But basically what he's wanting to do is like, I wanna build something. I wanna fix something here. I, I want this to last forever. Let's build some tents and let's hang out with Moses and Elijah and this whole thing. And perhaps Peter thought this is the end of the story. Jesus is shining, Moses and Elijah are here. His kingdom has come, right? This is the end of the story. Like now let's go tell everybody. Let's make sure everybody knows. Moses and Elijah said, Jesus is the guy. Like this, he's shining. This is the end of the story. We're gonna conquer Rome and move from here, period. Like the Super Bowl team, right after they win the Super Bowl, we did it. We're going to Disney World, right? Like we did this thing. Jesus is here with Moses and Elijah. He's the king. Let's move on. But this mountaintop experience is not the end of the story. It's preparation for the valley of the shadow of death. Mountaintop experiences in our lives are wonderful, but they're only part of the picture. Okay. This is not the end. I, I want us to grasp this. I think, no, I'll get there in a minute. The, but right after this passage, Jesus goes down the mountain. And the first thing he does is he faces a stubborn demon inside a kid. All right. The demon won't leave after repeated attempts. Finally, Luke gives us this sense that it's after a painful struggle that the demon leaves. Jesus goes from the mountaintop to the mess of stubborn demons. All the gospel writers, it's so interesting, have these two stories connected, the, the transfiguration and the kid with the demon. All the gospel writers have this. They want us to see these two events together. Our lives are primarily ones of taking up our cross and following Jesus. This is hard. It hurts. I've told you guys, like, as a church, it's not the most seeker-sensitive message to go out and tell everybody, come to church, come and die. <laughs> Give up your life, right? But that's our calling. It's who we're called to be. It means denying those things that are easy and attractive. I think one of the biggest myths for Christians in the 21st century is that our faith is supposed to be all mountaintop experiences. 
I think we spend so much of our time trying to convince people that they all just have a mountaintop experience and that's the goal of life. Now, mountaintop experiences are wonderful, but they're not the whole story. There's a church where we're from, and I try not to get critical about this, but there's a big sign on the road, and it says, helping people win every day. (laughs) That's what the sign says, okay? Helping people win every day. And I can try to give some grace and go, okay, yeah, sure, depending on what winning means for you. If winning means giving up your life so that you may have a new life, great, wonderful. But But the thing about faith is we're actually called to lose. (laughs) We're called to lose our lives, to give them up. But there's something way better on the other side, okay? The way of Jesus is not based on just winning every day. It's not just a mountaintop experience of glory. The way of Jesus is not the way of power. It's the way of weakness. In fact, God's glory is revealed in our weakness, In the transfiguration, Jesus is revealed in glory. That's a key word for today, glory. Later on, on another mountain outside of Jerusalem, on a cross, Jesus is revealed in shame, glory and shame. Here, Jesus' clothes in our story today shine like lightning, okay? At the cross, his clothes have been ripped off of him and the soldiers have gambled for them. Here, he's flanked by two of Israel's heroes, Moses on one side, Elijah on the other. At the cross, he's flanked by two of Israel's zealots, murderers who represent the level that Israel has run away from their calling to be a blessing to all nations. Here, in our story, we see the cloud of God's presence. At the cross, we see that darkness has covered all the land. Here, Peter bumbles and stumbles and he says, this is good, we should be here. At the cross, Peter is hiding in shame after denying that he knows who Jesus is. And then a pagan soldier is the one who declares, this is really the son of God. God's power, God's love, God's beauty surprise us at every turn. But we have to recognize that the Christian faith is about seeing true power, true love, true beauty in the most unexpected places, the places we wouldn't expect. Glory and suffering always go together in the Christian faith. We must not rely on our own assumptions as to how God works, but to allow him to reveal himself to us in new and fresh ways. We must know that God's glory is not yet fully revealed. We still groan and ache for this glory. We ache for this beauty to be manifest. But at the moments that we see true beauty, we must affirm them and recognize they come from him. Celebrate God in shining mountaintop moments. Do it. When you have a moment of transcendence, when you have a moment where God has changed your life, has brought you to tears, when you see a miracle, celebrate that. That is God shining. That's beautiful. Rejoice in that thing. And also remember that God's new world is brought about through self-giving love. God's new world is sustained by his self-giving love. We lose our lives and we find it a much better life. We're about to enter the season of Lent. And for those of you that this is new to you, or maybe we just need a reminder, um, The season of Lent is 40 days beginning this Wednesday, okay? But it's minus Sundays. That's why it gets a little bit confusing, okay? So you think about 40 days, but then you take away the Sundays, 
Um, I mean, it's, it's 40 plus days if you include the Sundays, but don't count the Sundays. And it's often thought of as a desert season. It's a season of recognizing our dependence on God. It's not like a, um, and this is a common misconception, it's not like a funeral season. It's not that we're just mourning all the time and all these kind of things, but it's recognizing that we don't need a lot of the extra things that we have in our lives that we trust in. We only need God. So it's often maybe better than a season of um, kind of thinking darkness. It's a season of simplicity, season of holding on to God only. This is often somewhat somber because we remember that without God, we're nothing but dust. That's what we'll remind ourselves of on Wednesday. It's recognizing our dependence. We recognize that everything that's beautiful and true and good in the world comes from him. And we open ourselves up to that reality. And in doing that, we allow God to shine through us. Some of us may choose to fast something during this season. I wanna talk about that for a minute. This is not a requirement. Um, some, of the, some of the few remnants that we have of Lent in our broader culture are some of you noticed that the fast food companies will advertise their fish sandwiches about this season. <laughs> and that's because many Roman Catholics um, will only eat We'll eat fish on Friday and give up uh, meat other than that. And so we see some of those remnants here, but some of us will choose to fast during this time. Um, It's interesting what fasting does to us. Fasting captures our attention, okay? That's primarily what it does. So when I fast something that I'm used to having, what I'm doing is reorienting and kind of shocking my mind and my body, all right? When I fast lunch and I spend time instead reading scripture or praying, my stomach is gonna start growling, all right? And there's a longing, there's a need. And it actually kicks in a version of our fight or flight response. We feel a sense of this desperation, even though it's just lunch, you know, we're not really starving, but we feel this sense of desperation. And it's a reminder, I'm not dependent on this food today. I'm dependent on God. He's the source of everything. If I'm used to grabbing a burger on my way home on stressful days, and then I choose to fast red meat, It will cause my mind and my body to do a double take. Where is that burger? If I'm used to thumbing through social media on my phone at every break in my day, when I'm waiting in line somewhere, I'm just sitting somewhere, and then I choose to delete that app for 40 days, I might be surprised at how much I freak out a little bit, right? My body and my mind are kind of, where is that? What is happening here? Maybe one of you, some of you are those brave souls who will choose to fast coffee, okay? That is a brave thing. Your body will not want you to do that, all right? You're gonna have some reaction to that. Um, But all of those things, what they do is it's not in any way kind of trying to prove something. It's not a moralistic kind of thing. It's not required. But what it is, is it's kind of kicking into that small version of our fight or flight response where we go, okay, what am I really dependent on here? Am I dependent on that thing? No, I'm dependent on God. A few things to remember during this season. First of all, fasting is not dieting. Don't set a weight loss goal for Lent, okay? That's just just different, it's a different thing, okay? Secondly, don't just give up bad stuff. I wanna say this. If you've been needing to stop drinking, just stop drinking, okay? Don't, Don't just use Lent for that. Lent may need to be the thing that kicks you into getting rid of a bad habit, but this isn't just get rid of bad habits month, okay? This is something different than that. Some of us are gonna give up things that are actually good, you know, but we're kind of more dependent on them than we should be, right? Replace, number three, replace the behaviors with other things. 
So I mentioned that if you fast lunch, you might um, pray during that time. Um, it, it, Lent is not just about giving up things. It's also about taking on habits that are better for us, that form us in ways that are oriented towards trust in God. Replace the Facebook app on your phone with maybe a prayer app or the Kindle app so that you can read some good and um, nourishing books in your life. Number four, feast on Sundays. Now there's different ways of observing Lent. Some people choose to fast all the way through um, and then they stop at Holy Week. What, we tend, or what we've chosen to do um, in our lives, you can do it however you want, but we'll feast on Sundays. So Sundays, you basically break your fast and that's where we celebrate. Again, this is why bad habits are not a good thing because you don't wanna go, Sundays, I can do all the bad things. No, um, but we, on, on Sundays, <laughs> Sundays we feast. What, why? Well, Sundays have always been thought throughout the church calendar, every single Sunday throughout the entire church calendar is kind of a little Easter. Every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection, okay? So those Sundays we feast and we celebrate, okay? Um, let's see. And then number five, remember, remember, remember. This is not about your moral perfection. It's not. God is not impressed if you go 40 days without doing something. This is not to impress God. Um, some of us are more kind of achievement kind of people and we really wanna earn a mental badge in our, in our head that says, I made it 40 days without this thing. That's not the point of this, okay? This is not to impress other people or to measure ourselves against others. Here's a side note, a little bit of a pet peeve. If you're fasting social media for Lent, don't tell people on social media that you're fasting for Lent, okay? <laughs> I mean, you can, it's fine, but it kind of defeats the point, okay? So, um, all right, do whatever you want, I don't care. Uh, finally, the point for all of us in this is that we need God, okay? We don't need food as much as we need God. We certainly don't need chocolate or coffee or Facebook or video games as much as we need God, right? We don't just remember our dependence on God. We are formed by our dependence. We become a dependent people. The entire Christian life is lived by grace, God's generosity, God's love. It's lived out of our weakness, not out of our strength. It's lived in light of God's glory, revealed both on the mountain of transfiguration and on the mountain of Calvary. May our lives be formed by God's self-sacrificial love and may we shine his light into the world. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, are oh so thankful for your love that is better than life. It's better than um, all the things that we believe that we're dependent on. Uh, Lord, we thank you that even those things that we require in life require food and water and air that those things come from you, that everything beautiful and good in the world comes from you. I pray as we enter this season that this would not just be about doing things or giving up things, but Lord, may we be oriented in this season towards trust in you. May we know you as our source and our hope. Our prayer today is that we would embrace this different way of life, this sacred journey, that is way different and way better than any other stories of our world. Lord, may we see you in your self-sacrificial love for us. 
both in your glory and in your suffering. We see that those things go together. We trust you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.